Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Tyler McGill, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? Brett, good to see you. Now I'm doing well. Um, just getting ready for a swim meet this weekend with Opelika. So um, it's, it's tough. It's getting stuff ready for this kind of thing right now is tough, but, uh, man, the kids are excited. So we're going to f- fuel off that. Opelika, where is Opelika so people understand? And what are you doing out in Opelika? Yeah, yeah. Opelika is this little community that's right next to the big brother of Auburn. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in Alabama, it's in Alabama. Yeah. So, and obviously I still get that question all the time. Like where in Georgia is Opelika? It's like, no, we're, we're, we're in Alabama. Um, but yeah, I mean, when, when we had the staff transition and um, made some changes, uh, my family and I decided that this is where we want to dig our roots in. And so there's just an opportunity with the city here to, grow a program and um, help them develop uh, a literacy for swimming in the community and just help them understand that there is a bigger world uh, of swimming than whether it's park and rec or local or whatever it is that um, they want their communities to see and be exposed to and be able to advance in their community. So it's been a really awesome two years so far just to be able to see that growth and build on it and allow allow the community to invest in it and, and see how happy they are with it well I, I like this podcast because we get to know people you know a little bit within the hour and um i certainly yeah. want to get i want people to get to know you because um you know you're one of those types of people that when you first meet you you're not the most imposing figure but the tyler mcgill i knew as a as a competitor as an athlete my god yeah. you were ferocious man and um and so, yeah, I want to, I want to kind of dig into that a little bit. Like, where did that come from? Who are you? Um, how did you apply that to your everyday life? And, and then where you are now as, as a head coach, you know, how do you, how do you identify, how do you mold, how do you um, nurture people just like you? Yeah, I know there's absolutely, there's a line inside. I mean, I think all, all athletes have to have that somewhere inside of them. Um, if they're going to, advance as far as the sport can take you no but it all started like just growing up I mean I think that's where all athletes start they they learn how to be competitive in things that they're not being competitive at the end of their career right so for me it was I mean being crazy competitive in the backyard playing soccer or football in the front yard or playing golf I mean then we always had different things that was like I want to beat you and there's an element of gentlemanship in that and, and being able to be cordial and nice and, and encourage family. But then at the same time, like I wanted to beat my older brother and my cousin every day that we did stuff. So, um, and I mean, it starts a long time ago, but I mean, you develop this line of this kind of fire inside of you throughout all these little moments along the way. And um, for me, I was fortunate enough to, to bring that out a few times in my career and, and allow that to shine and show and, um, it led me awesome places for sure. Now you're one of those kids that grew up playing different sports, right? 
I did. I mean, everything. I, and I, I ran cross country and played golf half the year I was in high school. So I really only swam from um, Thanksgiving until February was our high school season. And then as soon as I was done with track, I would get back in the water and I'd swim for the summer season and then cross country would roll around. And so I was typically only swimming uh, half the year all through high school. Well, nice. Well, that's good to know because I think a lot of people these days, as you know, as, as a coach of a club team, think that you have to specialize at a very young age. What's your message to parents when they kind of bring that line of thinking to you? I think it's good. Like I, I want them and I encourage the kids to do other things. We have a lot of kids on our team now who are, who are playing basketball, who are trying out for volleyball teams, who want to make the golf team, who, who have all these different enjoyments in life it's like okay yes do that but understand that there is also a swim season and there's times to invest in one thing and there's time to invest in the other um and we've come to a few points where those those multiple sports have collided and then the conversation becomes okay well which one do you want to invest into you know your swimming has gotten you this far and, and this is where you are in the sport do you want to continue or do you want to kind of stay where you are and Every kid has a different uh, mentality with that, but giving them the, the conversation and giving them the time to think about it and allow them to come to that conclusion on their own is to me what's the most important thing is because if a kid doesn't have this huge passion for swimming and they love to play basketball, then play basketball, like develop your, your line inside or develop that, you know, that fire for what you do, no matter what it is. And yeah, I want it to be swimming because I've seen develop and I've seen you grow, but uh, at some point you've got to start to pick and choose, especially if those are, are conflicting and they're getting in the way of each other. Um, but if you're developing and you're getting better, keep being athletic, keep learning how to do, do both and still find time to enjoy your life and enjoy the different things that you do. Nice. Now our history together goes way back, but basically to when I started coaching at, at Auburn university, you, you come yeah. along and you're from Champaign, Illinois, and you decide to pick Auburn university as the place that you want to go to college. How did that come about? Why'd you pick there? Um, I, I wanted to, I mean, Auburn at the time had this massive history of winning. Um, I think when I was being recruited, Auburn was in the, in the, um, in the run of trying to win their fourth national title in a row. Mm -hmm. So they'd already won three. And again, with my, my high school, we had success. I think at our state meet, we had finished fourth or fifth, a couple of years in a row. And I just remember thinking, I want to be a part of a team that wins. Like it, it was special to be on, um, on the podium and have individual success, but like, I wanted to go somewhere where I could have that team success. Um, and so obviously it was already going on at Auburn. So being able to figure out how to step in and contribute to that was something I wanted to do. And I remember our first team meeting that we had at Auburn and I'm sitting next to um, a really good friend now, Will Dove, who's in my class. And I think you had been named to the staff much later in, in the season, maybe like right even before school started. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember what the timeline with that was, but I remember him saying, Oh, we just, and, and Brett Hawk's going to be on staff now. I'm totally, like, I was the kind of swimmer growing up where like all I knew about swimming was that you, you raced and you got out. I didn't have any idea who you were or what, you know, some of the best athletes in the world were doing. 
And so he was all like excited for, you know, the sprint program at the time. And I mean, he was a distant swimmer and he was excited. So um, I just remember thinking, I don't know who that is. Like, but sure, like, let's, let's get to work. Yeah. I had no idea what was kind of in the works. And so um, I just remember thinking, all right, well, stuff is building and this team is continuing to get better. And I just was excited to be a part of it. Wow. You got a better, better memory than me. I didn't, I don't remember these things, little details like that. That's why I love having someone like you on that can remember this stuff. But um, you, you did come in with a unique attitude. I, I remember that for sure. Like, uh, you, you know, you just said you came into a team that was winning and yet the attitude that you come in with is, as a freshman, I'll let you explain it more because it was your, your mentality, your attitude, but it stood out amongst everybody. Yeah not just freshmen, it stood out amongst the whole team. So what was the attitude you decided to have from day one as a freshman? Yeah, I think that the, the, the most important thing was um, I, and looking back now, I was very, very mindful that I needed to find the thing that I could be good at. I didn't have this huge background in swimming. So like for me, being competitive in practice took a long, long time to do. And I could work hard, but I remember being in the water and like the Haley Pearsalls and the Adrian Benders and some of the, the, the faster women on the team at that time were just swimming laps around me. Um, and obviously the guys were too, but I remember just thinking, man, how am I supposed to keep up? How am I going to get through this? Um, and for me, my background was in running. Um, and so a huge part of the Auburn fall program at that point was running and dry land and being athletic. So I remember having these moments of thinking, okay, what can I be good at? Like, mm. how can I contribute? What's the one thing as a freshman that I can find and I can be good at. And it was easy for me because it was running and we were doing a lot of it. Um, but I remember within that time um, we were doing this tour de France style of dry land. And so every week there was updates with, you know, the yellow Jersey or a sprint Jersey or a mountain climber Jersey kind of thing. Um, and one of the things we were doing one day was like a, a two mile time trial on the track. And I remember getting on the track and right before we started, David Marsh had come up to me and said, Hey, it's okay. If you go fast, like it's okay. If you show off your talents here, I remember thinking, yeah, it is okay. Um, and I didn't win the two mile time trial, but I remember building confidence from that and, and thinking, okay, this is something that I can be good at. And this is how I can contribute to the team. And the more I learned how to do that, um, I found a voice in that, like an encouraging voice and a challenging voice to the teammates. Um, and that spilled over into the things that I was doing in the pool. So once I found what I was good at, I developed some confidence in my ability to speak up and challenge others. And then I realized I can do that all the time. Like it doesn't have to just be the thing that I'm good at. I can do that even in the things that I'm bad at. Um, and there's so many freshmen out there who have such a hard time their first year because they think they stink at everything. Like they just, they can't find a place where they're being successful. It's like, you don't have to be the best at everything. Find one thing that you can be good at. You might be the best at recruiting in your freshman class or the best at underwater kicking. And when you get a chance to do those things, then be really good at them and build confidence in it and, and then build on that. And so I think that's what that freshman year was more about than anything was finding that initial positive that I could build on. That's really good advice, man. Now, a lot of times 
swimmers or, or student athletes pick a school because of a coach and you signed on to David Marsh and the Auburn University swim team. And after your first year, David decides to leave and, uh, and they're talking about a new coach and then eventually Richard Quick signs on. What was your first impressions of that whole process and maybe even just first impressions of Richard? Yeah, well, I was lucky. I don't which coach at Auburn did I not swim for? That's kind of how I felt towards the end of my career. Um, well, you know, different assistants and I mean, assistants that became very successful. So, like, the first person to recruit me to Auburn was Dave Durden, and then it was Brian, and then uh, Brian, Brian Barnes. Yeah. yeah, and then and then David got involved, and um, you know, so to me, when that transition was going on, um, I, at that point, I didn't have a great relationship with David in terms of just being coach athlete relationship and, and being connected to him that way. Um, and that's, you know, our relationship and our communication is built over time, but I remember there being a lot of athletes at the time who were just like, so upset that David's leaving. And, and the first thing he told us when he had said that he was going to uh, move on to Charlotte was listen, the person who comes in after me is going to be better than me like that. I can guarantee you. And there was no reason for me not to trust what he was saying. I mean, he, based on what he had built and based on what um, the team was doing and how I felt we were, we were moving forward. It's like, all right, so, but who's better? Like in the scheme of, okay, David Marsh winning all these titles in a row and Auburn being so successful, who could he possibly be trying to bring in that's better? Um, and then when we found out it was Richard, it was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like <laughs> I thought the same thing, by the way, I was like, who's he going to bring that's better than him? But right. Like, Richard. Yeah, with all we've done and all that you you've been able to build here, who's better? And uh, he knew, right? And um, and so yeah, once I got to meet Richard for the first time and have a few conversations with him, it was like, okay, this is going to be this is going to be a really special relationship for the next three years of my swimming life. And so um, certainly really excited that I had that that chance. And it got cut short, obviously. Um, but man, those those 15 months that we got to build on and work on together. That was super special. Well, give us one, give us a Richard quick story. Give us an incident or, you know, a moment where he had an impact on you at the time, whether it was, was good or bad. There was a lot of learning experiences. I know yeah, it's Richard. I had so. a lot. I had a lot. I mean, I've got two that definitely stick out in my mind. Um, one is just sitting with him in his office before we'd even started. So this was going into my sophomore year and he's looking at, things that swimmers on the team and how they've done. And um, for me, going to the Olympics was never something that I even considered. Like it was um, find a way for Auburn to keep winning. Um, and so he sat in my office, I sat in his office and he said, okay, do you think you can be an Olympian? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't. I said, I want to, like, if I'm, if the best I'm, I am ever in this sport is, an All-American or um, an NCAA champion on a relay. Like I, I will invest fully in that. And I would love that. And remember him looking at me and being like, well, you can do that. You can, you can do that. But I also think you can be an Olympian. So let's see where this goes. And it was like, I'm, he wasn't going to push me right then and there. He had, he didn't know me. Um, but he knew me enough through talking to the coaches that, okay, there's something a little bit more special inside Tyler that 
he hadn't figured out yet. And I think that's where Richard was really good is, mm-hmm. um, you know, the dig into that, into people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a conversation with my wife. So my wife, Julianne was a swimmer as well. Very, very good backstroker. Um, and she always tells this story of like sitting down with Richard and, and, um, her talking about her goals and things like that. And she wanted to go 151 and it's in her backstroke. And his response, I think, was something along the lines of, well, if you can go 151 in a tuner backstroke, why can't you go 145 or 146 in a tuner freestyle? And, you know, Julianne just thinking, well, yeah, that that does make sense. Like, if I can be that good in backstroke, why can't I be that good in freestyle? And so he just always had unique ways of mm. spinning your own thoughts into thinking that you could do more without telling you how to get there. Just, you know, you could guide yourself that way. I love that, man. That's a really good uh, story because there was so many incidents I had with Richard that were like that. And yeah. maybe, maybe I took them for granted over time because I had so many moments where I was like, Oh, wow. Yeah, that's true. never thought of it that way. Like he's, oh, he was always planting seeds. Yeah, he was. And he, and he always wanted people to do it the right way. And he wanted me to be a leader and he wanted me to be vocal. Um, but he wanted people to do things with um, like, a certain amount of respect that it deserved. And so, I mean, a kind of another story is um, during that fall, we were doing a dry land and we were doing some jumping and like I did something during a jump and busted my knee. Um, and I remember just being on the ground kind of screaming and thinking my season was over and ended up for the next couple of weeks, I couldn't do anything but pull or swim on a cord attached to the block the the doctors wouldn't let me push off the wall or anything like that. And so I was finally able to do a pull set and um, the team was doing hundred IMs fast. And I had a couple teammates, uh, Michael Silva and Adam Klein, who are both, I mean, SEC champions NCAA all Americans and I'm pulling hundred IMs and I'm beating them and they're swimming hundred IMs. And um, I remember yelling many things that I shouldn't have been yelling across the pool, telling them to get themselves in check and they needed to go faster. And I'm every single time we got to the wall, um, yelling something at them. And the next day in the gym, like I'm getting ready to do this hang clean and I've never felt somebody squeeze my arm is like intensely or strongly as Richard, but he kind of came up and squeezed my arm. <laughs> he goes, listen, I love what you're doing, but you're never going to use that language on my pool deck again. And I was like, yes, sir. You got it. Um, <laughs> And so he wanted people to do things and, and to encourage, but they ha- had to be done the right way. Um, and so there was a lot of learning that all of his athletes, I'm sure, went through in those lines of learning how to be respectful, learning how to be mindful of what you're saying and understand the language that you're using and how it actually does affect people. And, and not everybody responds to the same level of communication or criticism or, or even encouragement. Some people need different kinds of encouragement to be successful. So he was trying to teach me some of those things back then too. Awesome. I love it, man. Great story. Um, you know, we, I can't remember, where did you, where did we finish the first year with Richard? It wasn't great. Uh, I think it was what fifth. We fifth. I think yeah. we were fifth. Yeah. Fifth. So we kind of, we kind of dropped and there was obviously disappointment. Richard was devastated and, and we cut, we'd kind of underachieved for sure. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, we had many great athletes. We had Cesar Cielo and a, a bunch of other people, but things just weren't clicking for us the first year. And then going into, you know, 2008 um, into 2009, 
when mm-hmm. when Richard, um, you know, has has this diagnosis around Christmas yeah. time, but but going into the second season, um, you know, we had we had wanted to do better than we did the first season for sure. Do you remember the start of the second season at all? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we as a team had these jokes of like we'd ha- we'd have dark sets and it would just be these sets. We'd get to the pool deck that afternoon and Richard would uh, ride a workout and it would take you to a dark place while you were swimming <laughs> and you had to find a way to like dig yourself out of it and be successful. And so you didn't know when it was, it could be on a Monday morning. It could be on a Thursday afternoon. Um, but we would constantly talk about, Oh, well, that was another dark set. Like, I had to go dig down deep into this place where I hadn't been before um, and come out of it and be, and be more successful. So there was so much work that was done that fall. um, And we felt like we were moving in this direction, like, okay, this thing is building again. And we went to the U S open that, um, that winter in Atlanta and people swam awesome. And we knew that we were, I mean, what we had done and how much rest we had going into that meet, there was momentum going into um, the, the Christmas holiday and, and being able to take some time off and let the bodies come back to us. But there was so much positive and, and quality work that had been done that fall that the result of 2009 had already been building. And, and then you add an element of emotion and drive into that halfway through the year and um more special things came after that yeah well i can't remember if i've told this story on on the podcast before but i remember you know richard was one of those guys that he was always on the pool deck early and he was always the last to leave and 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 he was just energy the whole time that he was there i mean you couldn't keep up with richard in terms of coaching energy there's no way um but i remember specifically we're doing one set right before Christmas, I can't remember the exact date, but it was very close to Christmas. Um, and he came up to me and he said, Brett, you're, you're in charge. You, you got to take over. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like Richard never left the pool deck. Richard never mm-hmm. left a workout ever. Um, it, it went against everything that he ever believed in. Um, and he just said, I got to go home. You're in charge. I got, I got to take off. I'm not feeling well. Something, something's not right. And then, and I remember, um, like yeah yeah no problem and then uh, we run the workout and I and I kind of didn't think twice about it I just I just imagine he went home to, to nap and then I get a phone call about two hours after practice and it's his wife June and mm-hmm. uh, and she's like have you seen Richard I'm like what do you mean no he he went home a couple of hours ago to, to go to get to bed he had a headache she's like I, he hasn't come home yet I'm like oh sheep so you know couple hours later apparently she june's driving around the the neighborhood and she finds richard circling the neighborhood he can't remember what house he lives in and uh she calls me and says i found him you know and then um she's like you know you'll probably take a few days off just to recover so i kind of just you know richard had left me in charge of the group so i was like all right let's go you know a couple of days later i get a phone call and um it was richard on the other end of the phone and he said brett I'll never coach again. You're done. That's it. And I, oh man, I get so emotional talking about this, you know, because mm-hmm. it was so personal, the phone call. But, um, you know, he told me he had brain cancer and, and he had six months to live. And I was like, shoot, you know? So 
we obviously had to pull the team. And I think at that stage, you guys had gone home, had you, for Christmas? Yeah. No, yeah. And I think this is the part of um, – like people don't understand a lot of the, the back part of why this team was so successful. Um, man, you're making me a little emotional thinking about it. Because I get home, and so we fly home, and it's like December 21st or 2nd. And the first morning that I wake up when I get home, I've got a missed call from you. I'm like, what is Brett calling me for? And um, called you back and, and we talked to the phone and you told me about Richard. And, and it was like, Tyler, I need you to call all the juniors and seniors. I'm going to be calling the freshmen this morning. And so I spent that entire morning calling my teammates to tell them, hey, listen, this is, this is what's going on. This is why Richard's been gone. Um, and just, I don't know anything more, but, you know, enjoy your time with your family and, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure it all out when we get back to Auburn. And so I just remember having such a different bond with my teammates the rest of the year that way. Um, making those kind of phone calls. I mean, you calling me or, you know, even June calling you or you talking to Richard, like the emotion that goes into that over and over and over again um, was so, so challenging, but in a, it just, it built this really unique bond between the guys of like, there's something greater that we're fighting for now. Um, and we all felt it. We all went through it away from the pool, like in our own time, in our own space back at home, we were able to start to deal with it and process it. And when we got back, it was just like, there was a, we were doing so much good and things were going so well that when we got back, it, it somehow it even shifted into like, you know, this, this different mode of seriousness and focus and still having fun and, and, and enjoying being teammates like you should when you're in college. But um, obviously something meant more to us the rest of that, that year. And, um, a lot of teams look at the, you know, people outside of the sport, even people in the sport, and they just see, okay, Richard diagnosed Auburn wins. And they think, oh, wow, those guys had so much to fight for. Um, and we did, but they only saw that end of us, of us really um, working together and, and, and seeing the result of that. People don't know the the tears that went into that result. They don't know the, like the front porch conversations that we're having between practice. And they don't know the, the looks in each other's eyes for two months leading up to that. They see Auburn celebrating and think, wow, that's a great story. Um, but nobody outside of that team, as much as it's ever talked about, and it's been talked about a lot. And, you know, I mean, you've told, you know, stories before and I've told them no one's ever going to understand what that team went through and, and what it was. Um, but I think that, that people can learn from hearing about our, our struggles that we went through and how we connected to each other and how that was more important than anything else that happened at the end of the year. Yeah. it's a great way to put it, man. And uh, I, I love your perspective on that because it's so true. It's so hard to put into words sometimes, but that that's definitely how it 
went down. Um, there was certainly a turning point, I think, for us. You know, the the shock of Richard being out, and then you know the this is how I ended up becoming the head coach eventually. But the athletic director came to me and said, "Hey, Brett." you know, you're in charge of the men, Dorsey, Tini Walker's in charge of the women. We're going to split the programs for a couple of months and, and you guys can just focus on doing what you need to do. And, and so that kind of relieved me a little bit that I was just able to focus on this um, one men's team. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we, we certainly had to get come together on it. And, so, you know, for me, a turning point was the Texas dual meet, you know, where yeah. we, where we had, um, well, we're racing the number one team in the country. And, and I felt at that stage, we just didn't perform the way I expected us to perform in terms of fighting for Richard at that early stage. And that's early January. So we have this news late December and early January, we race against Texas at home in Auburn. Talk to us about that meet real quick. Well, we just had a lot of races that we could have won and should have won and didn't win. I mean, that's what it came down to. Mm -hmm. I think that was a lot of our message the next day after the meet. I mean, I remember being a body length or two ahead of Ricky Barron's at going into the last 25 of a 200 fly and, and losing. And it's like, that shouldn't happen. Like we are significantly better than that. And, um, and we talked a lot about the third and fourth place races and not just winning the, the race overall, but like winning the little battles that you were in. Um, and I mean, obviously afterwards, the, the stuff that we did afterwards, really kind of fueled that fire a little bit where we went outside the long course and we, we warmed down. Um, and then we did a little bit of extra and then we kept doing a little bit extra, um, you know, and I, I don't know what all the, the, the rules and stuff were back then with that, but I know that we could get away with doing more of that back then. And I mean, we were doing just, it's like, 20, 50 butterfly long course, climb out 10 pull-ups, 50 butterfly long course, 10 push-ups, and, and it was just like, go, 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 go. And I remember at one point, um, Aaron Charla came over and he tried to give me some water and like my legs are just, they're in knots. I'm barely walking. I'm barely making it across the pool. I just remember slapping the water out of his hand and just being like, get that out of my face. Like, this is what we're doing. Don't try to make it more comfortable for me. Like get, get out of my face and like watch me grind and watch me work. And you're not, no one's going to break me in this moment. Um, certainly not this set of fifties and certainly not this meet. Um, and there was obviously so many other of the athletes that had that same mentality that night of like, fine, like throw the kitchen sink at us, but you're not going to break this team and you're not going to break us in this moment. And, um, it was another one of those moments where the team got closer together. So it just, it just built us. It just kind of made us one unit, um, and anyone that broke, they didn't make it. Like they didn't, they didn't make the SEC team or the NCAA team. Um, but those that stuck with it and, and found a way to bring together, um, obviously much stronger in the end. Yeah, I mean, I was part of a few national championship teams as a swimmer, but you know, David as a coach built those teams and and was very successful. And he would always tell me that the the winning teams, the times that they would win NCAA's, is when the group would ultimately decide to come together. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what we did at that moment. Um, you know, we had obviously had, had an impact with, with Richard's diagnosis, but that moment of, of losing the Texas dual meet and then going through that extended warm down that lasted 
mm-hmm. a while um sort of galvanized all of us of like hey we're all in this together and we're and we're all we can all be better and um from that moment on i just felt a change like i almost stood back and just let you guys go to work for the next few months and for me going into ncaa's we certainly weren't the favorites but for me we had a team uh we didn't have a group of individuals we had a group of men going in there to to battle um that's the way i I saw it and you guys were very together very united Uh, you know i remember i remember sitting down at the team dinner a couple of nights before we all we all go out to a big team dinner and it was the most connected team i've ever felt a part of just everybody was just friends with each other there was no clicks there was no you know little groups there was there was no jealousies it was just everybody had something to contribute and you were just all connected and i think to this day that team is still very connected we are yeah yeah definitely we are and and that that group i mean i remember thinking the same thing and i remember even the next meet we raced florida and um i mean it was a great meet i love kicking florida's butt and we smashed florida that year um in the dual meet and then obviously had a ton of momentum and and swam great at conference and honestly that we had a lot of performances at the conference meet that had they been repeated at the ncaa's we would have won by a larger margin at ncaa's i think you know matt target for example um i think he went back to australia for his trial meet between the two meets you know and some of the stuff that he did at ncaa's he could have been better and um but he had you know bigger aspirations and, and wanted to be better and, and be on the international scene. And so there was performances like that as great as he was and as awesome as he was and, and winning relays for us. Um, like he should have won two individual events at NCAAs that year. And he should have been top eight in the hundred fly. And, and he wouldn't d- deny that by any means, but he had a greater goal that he wanted to go for too. And so there was definitely little performances like that um, at NCAAs and, that I think we could have been better, but uh, we were good enough. That's for sure. That's true. Now, now a lot of people put down the 2009 winning championship as a championship that was won another way. And, uh, you know, you can, you can talk to us a little bit about that. We did have um, a special suit that came along around that time. And, uh, you know, we were the only team, at the NCAAs to have a certain suit. Now it was completely legal. It was open to anybody that wanted the suit, but we were the only ones that ended up getting some. So we, (laughs) yeah. How'd that go down? I just, well, I just remember like showing up to the, there's like a small Auburn rinky dink Auburn aquatics meet. And um, I get to the pool and Fred's wearing this like fire truck red suit. Called the red Ferrari. Yeah. And he, 18.7. 18.7. And it was like, wait a second. What's, what is that? Like Fred, Fred really ripped one there. Um, and so it's like, can we, how can we get some more of those? <laughs> and so I remember like the, the suits, we got them in the night before the meet started. And, and one of our backstrokers, Pascal walks trying to get one on and he, he rips a big hole in the side of his leg. And so, but he's going to wear this suit. And so the entire meet he's, He's wearing a suit that's got a big old hole in the side of the thigh because, you know, like it, I think it was more of a belief thing too. And um, Well, here's the thing is like we were sponsored by Speedo and we were contracted to wear through Richard's contract 
um, to where Speedo, but the guy, you know, you guys as a, as a group came to me and said, like, can we get, can we get some of these suits to wear? And I'm like, no, we're contracted by Speedo. But you're like, please just give us a couple, like just a couple. And I was like, they're really expensive. They're really hard to get. You got to get them from Italy. So there was all this back and forth. And I was like, you know what? That's Richard's contract. And uh, it's not really my contract. So it's like, why don't we just get a couple of suits? What, what can it hurt? So we, we, we figured out how much money we had in the budget. So we had, you know, maybe $3,000 and we're like, all right, let's yeah. allocate. How many suits can we get for $3,000? And how quickly can we get them? We go through Fred Busquet and he's talking to Italy and we overnight these suits to, to actually, we got them delivered to the hotel at NCAAs. Yeah. And, uh, and I think there was, I think there was eight suits that turned up, you know, and at the time we had 15 men. So it certainly wasn't enough for the whole team. Yeah. And, uh, and then we put, and there are all these different colors. One was red and one was gold and one was silver. And it was like, <laughs> what are these things? So we hadn't, we hadn't, you know, tested them in racing. Um, and they just turn up. So I, I remember, um, you know, we, we decided to go, we do these stingers a couple of days before the meet. And we, we decided to go down the pool and do the stingers and, just so happened that another team was doing stingers at the same time. Talk me through that. Uh, I mean, I mean, make, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Cal that was there yeah. at the same time. Yeah, it was yeah. Cal. Cal was doing stingers in lane seven and we were doing them in lane eight. Or, or they're in lane eight and we decided to go next to them in lane seven. Sure. <laughs> yeah, whatever it was, it was some arrogant move of us to like just be right next to the other team that's doing them. But I just remember like, they would do one and we would do one. It would be like, well, ours was a lot faster than theirs just now. And, <laughs> and then, and then it was another one. And it was like, well, that we, we were a lot faster on that one too. Um, There's a lot of mind games going on in the stingers. It was, and NCAAs. It, it was, and it was fun. And I, but it's one of those things that just kind of gave us more and more confidence. And, you know, I, I didn't wear that suit every race. I didn't wear it um, in the last relay at the end of the meet. I didn't wear it in 200 IM and, so there was, there was lots of swimmers at that meet who didn't wear that suit and still just did these phenomenal things. Yeah, so yeah. I think, it, I think for some people it helped and um, for others, they didn't have the choice, but they still found a way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was definitely one of those moments those that day before was like, okay, that team's on fire and they know they're on fire and um, they're going to have a good meet. And we, uh, we sure did. Now the, the meet came down to the last day between us and Texas. And I remember the morning of, we had a meeting and, and I said some things that I've, I've already talked about on this podcast, but PK yeah. came in after me and said some things. And I haven't actually ever heard the full story of what PK said to you guys. Cause I, he yeah. actually asked me to leave the room. He, he asked all the coaches <laughs> to leave and it was just him and the swimmers. Um, but when you guys came out, I could tell he said something that was very yeah. impactful to you. Can you let us in on what he said? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I should or not. <laughs> now, <laughs> give me a little I, bit. Give me. No, give me I, I will. I will. I will. Um, because it, it's like it's one of those stories that, like nowadays, it's like it's so many years ago now. now PK uh, was our strength coach, our very yeah, famous strength coach. Right. And, and there was a moment the that links. fall. Yep. There was a moment in the fall where we were doing drylands, and and um, the dark night had just come out that fall, and so uh, this dryland, PK dressed in um, Joker face paint. And, um, and he came into the meeting room that afternoon and he, he put, had put the face, the, the Joker paint back on. Mm. Um, and it was like this really cool reminder of like, remember that, remember like all that work that you did, remember all the stuff that we did, like 
that's going to show up today and you're going to perform and you're going to be great. And now you've got to go get a piece. Now you've got to go and do it. Um, and he, and he had a, um, he had a Texas swimming and diving shirt and he said, okay, so who wants a piece? And that shirt got ripped into about 20 pieces and um, was tied to our bags. So every, every Auburn swimmer going into the, the, the pool deck that morning had a piece of a torn up Texas swimming shirt tied on their bag. Like, wow. Go get a piece. And, and like, no one knew it. We're not going to, we weren't boasting about that that morning. We weren't telling people about that, but like, that's um, the mentality that team had of like, go get a piece, like go, you know, for us, go tear them apart, go win it. Um, and the momentum we had right after, right at the beginning, like the 200 backstrokers, you know, doing what they did. And then um, it just built on that. And by the uh, end it was of just the an training, annihilation uh, that, that morning, it was just complete destruction. Absolutely. Yeah, it was. And um, it was so much fun. And so like, I, I love talking about it because it was just one of those moments that not, you don't get to experience very often. So like looking back, it, it was just a fun moment. You know, it's not a look at us, look how amazing we are and, and kind of a, a, not a boastful thing. It's, it's an enjoyment thing that we had so much fun performing together and celebrating each other's victories that, you know, the result was what it was. Um, but it was just something that we did together and we had so much fun doing it and celebrating every little drop, every big drop. Um, and by the end of the morning, it was like, well, we did the job. Like it's our meet now and let's go have fun tonight and do it again. And, and let's win the thing. Great story, man. Thanks for sharing that. I, I didn't fully know that all. So I'm glad I, I've got the full picture now and I can see why yeah. you guys were in such an incredible state. I remember we got to the pool. Well, I remember I was out in the vans and everybody got in the vans after PK spoke and I was like, oh dear, we're ready to go. Whatever, whatever just happened, we are ready. I didn't say a word after that. I just sat back and enjoyed it. Like you said, it was a, it was a pleasure to watch. Um, well, look, we're running out of time here, and I really want to get to another part of the story that, you know, is really important in your life, and that yeah. is when you actually do end up making the Olympic team. Now, right. in between that, you go to Rome, and, and you win medals at the at the World Championships in Rome, and also in Shanghai, you finish third in the 100 Butterfly in 2011. So you have moments over the next few years where you're very successful, and you're swimming for the US, and, and you do really well, and you get on the podiums at, at big major meets, but... Now is the time in 2012 where it's like, am I going to become an Olympian? And at that time, I remember, you know, you're racing Michael Phelps in the 100 Butterfly to try and make the team and, and, and many other great athletes. But one of the ones that put his hand up to say, hey, I'm going to swim this event was Ryan Lochte. And Ryan Lochte was just incredible uh, in 2012. I mean, he was just yeah. phenomenal. So for, for Lochte to say, I'm going to swim the 100 Fly, there were a lot of people that were like, well, that's a lock. It's Phelps and Lochte. And game yeah. over um talk to us about you know the anything you want to talk about in relation to qualifying for the team oh wow um if if you don't go through that that process as an athlete now so anyone that's in a position where they can possibly make an olympic team if you don't go through that and at some point along the way like experience a little bit of doubt or, a you know, question yourself a little bit, then you're, 
like you're not doing it right. Like everyone goes through that, you know, even, um, even the best athletes in the world at some point, they've is, is mentally tough as they can be. And, and when, in the moment counts, like the, the strength of their mind and, and that in them comes out and they perform and they get it done. But there are a million moments between that, that race and, and prior where your head talks to you, you know, and, and it tells you, well, I don't know, can you get your hand on the wall? Can you, can you go that time? Can you, can you finish second? Um, and so a lot of our conversations before the meet were about like, don't set an expectation on what you can do. As soon as you start trying to get second place, then next thing you know, you're going to be in a battle for fifth. Um, you know, it, it approach this meet, like you're trying to win the race and things like that. And so, I mean, but there was definitely these doubts of like, man, I got to beat Ryan and Michael. Um, how am I going to get that done? Um, and so, I mean, thankfully we had a really good talk before the meet and before the, the session that night of like, this is up, like, this is your choice. This is your decision to, to do this. Um, and I've gone back and I've looked at the interviews that I did directly after that meet and my mentality, like, I don't think I'll ever get back to the mentality that I had going into that finals race because there was no doubt like there was no questioning but there was a lot of it the 24 hours prior to that I mean I talked to the different USA doctors to kind of come up with a plan of like how to stay focused and this and that and um I mean I swam well in the prelims and well in the semifinals and was trying to talk myself through the process of like that's the prelims just get it done and remember after the semifinal, it stung a little bit and I didn't go nearly as fast as I wanted to. And now I'm starting to question like, okay, like, can I go 51-3 and 51-2 and make this meet and make the Olympics? And so for about 16 hours, there was just an incredible amount of doubt and questioning that was going into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, our, our conversation that morning before the finals as I'm warming up of like, hey, you've got – you know, a decision to make, are you going to make this Olympic team or not? It's up to you. And, and then just go do it. And so, I mean, the next 12 hours kind of leading into the, the final, it just kind of became this constant. I'm doing it. Like I'm going to make it, I'm going to do it. And, and slowly, but surely the, the positive side of what I was doing and what I was thinking took over to a point where, like I, I hardly remember anything from that evening. Um, I mean, very, very little from my, my preparation to the actual race itself, because it was more of a mindset and a focus where the outcome was certain. Um, and obviously it happened. So I get to tell that side of the story and there might be athletes that get to that point that don't win. It doesn't mean they, they weren't focused, but, um, you know, I was obviously fortunate enough to, to get my hand on the wall second and almost win the race and, and qualify for London. Yeah, huge. And, and that was kind of my point to you is, you know, both of us had got to this point where it's like, yeah, I mean, there are so many doubts that we, we could have on that at that moment. You know, sure. Like, it's easy to look at the reasons why you shouldn't do it or, or, or won't make it or, or even the mountain that you have to climb in order to make it. But at that point, it's like, what's the point of focusing on that stuff? It's it's there. We already know it's there. Why are we going to put our focus on it? Why don't we just put our focus on doing what we came here to do? 
and that was swimming fast enough to win the race and to qualify for the u.s olympic team that's it simple as that go and do what we came here to do and um and you you know as an as a coach you always want your you always want to have athletes that can um just take control of the moment. And that's what you did. I, I didn't do anything special at that point in time. It was certainly all you, you were capable of, 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 of controlling that moment. And, and it was probably through your experiences, through all the experiences that you had that got you to that point. But at some point you just got to trust yourself. And I think that's yeah. what the message to any young athlete going into Olympic trials next year, who might be up against it is just trust yourself and back yourself because there may be no one else in the stadium that will. So yeah. if anyone's going to do it, it's got to be you and your coach. You've just got to back yourself. And whatever comes from that comes from that. But you don't want to look back with regret and say, wow, I really wish I had believed I could have done that. And that's that's all I wanted from you. And then you went out and executed and it was perfect. And um, there's only been a couple of times in my life where I've cried after an, an, a race and that was certainly one of them. Like, holy shit, he just actually did it. There's one thing to say it that you want to do it. And you believe you can do it, but then actually executing and doing it, it's like, wow, uh, incredible swim. Um, I've asked a couple of other people about this in terms of how they feel about being an Olympic gold medalist. Um, you know, you were obviously going into the Olympics and at the Olympic Games, you were Michael's backup in the 100 butterfly for the relay. You know, you swam the morning, but the morning qualified for the final and the final, they win the gold medal. And so you're, you're appointed a gold medal. And, and I... I'm very proud of you being an Olympic gold medalist, just knowing from the moment where you started swimming to where you ended to get to that point, there's a, <laughs> a multitude of work and effort from many different people to get to that point. So to not be proud of that Olympic gold medal is an insult to everything that has ever come before you. So I'm extremely proud of it. How do you feel about it? Um, wow. So um, yes, thank you for asking because um, for many, many years, I was not proud of it. Um, and, and proud's maybe not the right word. Like I had a hard time looking at the gold medal and like celebrating it and being excited about what happened when I did. And I remember, I, and I still do this, but I go to whether it's a fitter and faster clinic or I, you know, I talk to swimmers on my own team and I end up using the word like, this is the gold medal that I earn. Like I didn't win it. Like that's the reality. And that's the athlete in me and the competitor in me. Like I was not in the pool when Nathan Adrian touched the wall or I wasn't you know, behind the blocks. Like I did not personally win this medal. I was an, it was an earned medal from my, you know, what I did and how I contributed to the, the preliminary relay. Um, but I had a very, very hard time for several years trying to, like celebrate all that. And, you know, I don't know if other athletes who just, who I say just who win medals on relays feel that way, but I certainly did. And I, um, I didn't ever want to display it, you know, very hesitant, even to this day to, you know, have it out and show it to family and friends and and things like that. And people that come to our house. Um, And I had a hard time, a, a really hard time for, for several years figuring out like, why can I not celebrate this? Why can I not enjoy it? And, um, the, the reason is, and the reality is like, I didn't know where to place that joy. Like, where does that joy come from? How does an athlete go through, um, a career and have success and have failure and, 
in the end have joy and have pride in what they did, whether they were really successful or really or not, you know? Um, and the reality is for me, it had, and I'm going to take a minute to say this, but like it, it had everything to do for me with my relationship with Christ and seeing like true value in who I was and what I was doing. And so, you know, there might be someone out there that's listening to this right now who, who feels that way. And, you know, I hope that that can be a, a testimonial to them of like, where do you do, where do you really find value in who you are and what you do? Um, and for me, it was that relationship and it was that understanding and that, and, and that idea of putting myself into something bigger and knowing that there's something bigger out there for me and a plan for me. And I think that's why I love what I do now. I think that's why um, I can give to the swimmers on my team now, knowing that they might not ever reach a level that I reached or might not even come close to it. Um, but how can I show them the value and who they are and what they're doing? And if, if I think as coaches, if we can do that, then a lot of the problems that athletes are facing today, and it's, it's, it's not a secret anymore. Athletes face severe mental problems that they have to deal with. And my belief is that a lot of that comes from finding out who they are and knowing where they come from and knowing who their creator is and knowing that there's a bigger plan for them and, and having a belief in that. Um, and so and there's a lot of other things that go into that as well, but, you know, I think you've got to know who you are and you've got to know what makes you special. And it's not, it's not a gold medal. You know, it's, um, it's not a victory or a second place or a third place or making the final, like that is not what makes you successful as a person. It's, it's what you are put on this earth to do to inspire others and to support others and, and lead others to a, a fruitful life. And so for athletes that are struggling or for athletes that are looking at the result and thinking that they don't have joy in that, like um, there is a, a bigger, more special, greater world for you. And I hope that you find it, but it's not going to be in a result. It's not going to be in a single performance. It's going to be in relationships. It's going to be in um, time spent by yourself Um it's going to be in communications with other people. It's, it's not going to always be, and it shouldn't be in just a result. It should be in um, who you are and what you're trying to do with your life. So um, thank you for the, the couple of minutes to be able to talk about that because it's, it's so important. And, um, you know, it's not something I get to talk about all the time. So thank you. Yeah, man. Well, listen, you're a, you're a beautiful man, a uh, special place in my heart and everything you just said. Um, I love it. And, it comes from a genuine place and uh, I think people needed to hear it and I'm glad you said it. So listen, I'm, I'm glad we had the platform. Glad we spoke today. I want to, I want people to get to know Tyler McGill because you are a, a unique uh, man and, and a leader. And I'm, I'm glad you're leading those young kids out in Opelika. They couldn't have a better person leading them. So thanks again, man. Good to see you. Yeah, Brett. It was, it was a pleasure and um, anytime. So thank you. All right. Take care, buddy.